As we begin this morning, I want you to consider the question, what does it take to be accepted by God? When we ask the question that way, we probably, most of us go to the idea of, of goodness. We must be good enough, and if I'm good enough, God will accept me. I wonder if there are those here who think that they're beyond hope, that they're so bad that there's no chance that God will accept them, that they may as well just not think about that because they're too far away from God. In one sense, you could say that the Gospel of Luke is all about this question. What does it take to be accepted by God? Who can approach God and be received by him? Unlike us, one of the prevailing ideas that Jesus was addressing were people who thought they could be accepted by God because they were Israelites. They were ethnically descendants of Abraham, and they were practicers of the Israelite religion. And some of these, these Pharisees were experts in the religion. And so they thought they had a special right to be on side of the, uh, the inner circle of God's family. They sort of presumed upon their identity that they were accepted by God. None of us here, I think, assume that, that, that same assumption, but we may have similar ones. Or maybe you came from a, a Christian family or a good moral family or a family that was upstanding and important in your community, and therefore you think, I should be accepted by God. This morning, Jesus is going to talk to us about what it means to be accepted by God and who is part of Christ's family. As we walk through this text this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. And we're going to organize it under three headings. First, we're going to see that God gives spiritual life. Second, that God gives this life through his word. Third, that unbelief leads to death. So God gives spiritual life. God gives this life through his word. And third, that unbelief leads to death. With that, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to read the first 18 verses of Luke chapter 8, and we'll save the last few verses of our passage for the end. Listen to God's word, Luke chapter 8, verse 1. You can find this on page 864, the Bible's provided. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew, and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. 
The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has, not even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. I'm sorry, from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So in Luke chapter 7, we saw two main themes developed by Jesus. The first theme was his powerful saving word. So in that chapter, Jesus healed a centurion servant by his word. And by speaking a word to a dead man, he raised the widow's son. And then finally, with a word, he forgave the sins of the sinful woman. The second theme was faith, and specifically faith that shows up in unlikely people. So again, going back to the idea of who can be part of God's family, part of God's kingdom. Well, in Luke, it's largely the unexpected people. Right? A Roman centurion has faith. This sinful woman who is known for her many sins in her town, she has faith and her sins are forgiven, while Simon the Pharisee is called out by Jesus. Simon the Pharisee is called out by Jesus for his failure to love, his failure to honor Jesus. These things reveal his lack of faith. Jesus says that the Pharisees had rejected God's purpose for their lives because they had rejected Jesus. So those are the two themes that have been kind of weaving together in Luke 7, and really we see them continue in Luke chapter 8 with perhaps we might say variations on the themes. So here in Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us more about the work of God's word, and the, we see that in the parable of the sower, and we continue to confront the fact that some hear the word and believe and are saved by Christ, like the sinful woman, while others reject the word. We hear more about faith. But as the chapter begins, we see a second theme as well. These two groups are mentioned. First, in verses 1 through 8, the crowds. Then there's kind of a transition to the disciples. I want you to notice that when the chapter opens, we read that Jesus is proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of God. And he's doing this in village after village, town after town. And, and great crowds have gathered to him. People are just pouring out to see Jesus and hear him. And to them, he proclaims the kingdom of God. So that's what verses 1 through 4 are, or 1 through 8 are all about. Jesus' ministry among the crowds. But note that Luke takes, takes care to say that even though Jesus is ministering among the crowds and proclaiming the kingdom, he's got disciples there with him. 
right? The 12 that he had called apostles earlier, as well as these women who are named, who apparently were providing materially out of their means so the disciples could be Jesus' students. So we can imagine them feeding and housing, perhaps providing money for their journeys. So Luke wants, to be, wants us to be mindful of these two groups. We've got the crowds, and within the crowds, this smaller group of faithful disciples. We could put this as saying there are insiders and outsiders. There are those in Jesus' inner circle who have received the blessings of Jesus' kingdom, and there are those who are outside some of whom, by God's grace, will receive those blessings of the kingdom, but have not yet come to know them. Then beginning in verse 9, the ministry focus of Jesus switches from a public declaration to the crowds proclaiming the kingdom to the disciples, and to the disciples, he says, he's giving the secrets of the kingdom. I think that's an important distinction, proclaiming versus giving the secrets of the kingdom. To the outsiders, he proclaims. To the insiders, he gives the secrets. We'll talk more about that in a second. We might wonder, how could we best describe the difference between these outsiders and insiders? Well, we could rightly say faith is the answer, right? There are some who believe and some who don't believe. And that's that's a good summary. But Jesus actually pushes the question to kind of one level higher. Why do some believe? and some not believe? And the answer he gives is challenging to us. The answer is, it's God's will that it be this way. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to you, speaking to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So according to God's good pleasure, He chose to reveal certain things to his disciples to open their blind eyes, and he chose to hide things to some others, to speak only in parables that were not interpreted. It was God's will to open the eyes of some and to leave others in blindness. Now this is, again, a provocative and challenging thing to hear. Why why should it be this way? Well, first we need to notice where this Uh, idea of blinding or hearing and not hearing comes from. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 6. It's one of the most important chapters in your Bible. It's going to be a touchstone. All the gospel writers point back to this passage. But Isaiah chapter 6 is the passage where Isaiah is given a vision by God of God's own glory. God's glory fills the temple. In the book of John, Jesus says that what Isaiah saw was was himself. Isaiah heard and saw Jesus in some manner in that glorious vision in the temple. And after Isaiah sees the vision, after his sins are atoned for by the cherubim touching the burning coal to his lips, Isaiah uh, hears this question, who shall I send? And Isaiah volunteers to be God's messenger. But then God gives Isaiah a seemingly hopeless task. He gives Isaiah the job of preaching to people who are dull of heart who keep on hearing, but do not understand. He's telling Isaiah, you're going to be a preacher, but no one will listen to you. And so Isaiah wonders, how long is this going to be this way? It becomes clear that things are this way because God is judging his people. He's pouring out judgment through the exile that he will bring through Assyria and Babylon. 
And so there's going to be this extended time of judgment, an extended time where many people will not repent until God's judgment is fulfilled and he finally brings a remnant of his people to repentance. So it's clear that at least in part, blinding work is judgmental work. It's punishment for rebellion. It's God leaving people in their sins and not opening their eyes. Now, if you're following along this first point, I said that God gives spiritual life. It may sound like I'm just saying God doesn't give spiritual life, right? I don't blame you for thinking that, but I hope that we can see how the opposite is also true. It's not just that God prevents spiritual life. Jesus also chooses to give spiritual life to some. That, that should also grab our attention. Who deserves to have Jesus open their eyes? Who can claim before God, God, I've earned this. You owe me enlightenment. None of us do. None of us can claim that. But Jesus graciously opens the eyes of his disciples. Had they done anything to earn or deserve this grace? So again, what makes these crowds of disciples different? We say faith. We could also say the will of God. There's one more way we could characterize it. The disciples are different because they enjoy nearness to Jesus. That's what made the difference. Jesus was with them, and he explained the parable to them. So the the secrets of the kingdom are not like they have some secret decoder ring or the Da Vinci Code or some kind of thing by which they're figuring this stuff out. The disciples, it says... They have to ask Jesus to explain the parable to them. They don't possess the knowledge. The secrets they're given are given by Jesus, being there with them and explaining the parable to them. What the disciples have is Jesus himself. Jesus' presence with the disciples then is kind of like a a living parable. It shows us what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is. The kingdom of God is Jesus' life-giving, eye-opening, heart-renewing power and presence. That's what these disciples are enjoying. God gives spiritual life. And we can say he gives it through Jesus. It's through knowing Jesus, the one who forgives sins, the one who raises the dead, that people who are far from God because of our sin, can come near and enter into God's presence. God gives spiritual life through Jesus. So what does it take to approach God? It takes coming through Jesus. There's a subtle error that we can make as Christians who really appreciate and love doctrine. So we rightly celebrate wonderful doctrines like the doctrine of justification, That truth, that by faith alone, God counts us righteous in Christ. That Christ's righteousness is perfect, and, and God imputes Christ's righteousness to us so that we stand before God as righteous. That's a a glorious truth. But we should be careful to remember that it's not the doctrine that saves. The doctrine helps us understand the person and work of Christ. It is Christ who is our righteousness. It's Christ, our loving Savior, who saves. So God gives spiritual life 
through Jesus. And so the reality that God gives spiritual life through Jesus tells us, keep looking to Jesus. Sometimes we want to take the the logical implications of the fact that God gives life and say, well, if God gives life, then I guess maybe he must have given death to this person, so I won't share the gospel with him. Or you might say, well, maybe I haven't been been given that privilege of life, and so I just shouldn't worry about coming to God because I have to wait for some zap from God. That's not an application that the scriptures ever make to us. The, the gospel says, look to Jesus. Don't wonder whether you are hopelessly lost and destined to be blinded by sin. You're never going to find the answer to that question by, by looking inward. There's no place in the Bible where you can discern, is your name not in the Lamb's book of life? Those are secret things that God reveals to no one. But you can find hope by looking to Jesus. If you're asking that question, can I, can I find hope? Is there any hope for me? Then that's a good sign. That should encourage you. God is already working. He's begun maybe to annoy your conscience with the reality of sin and death. And so the message is, turn to Jesus and find life. Trust in his perfect life and death And then exchange your filthy rags of sin for his heavenly clothes. Be clothed by him in his righteousness. Trust in Jesus, the one who raises the dead and has himself been raised, who has conquered death, who's ascended to the right hand of God. Trust in him and receive eternal life. Christians, we can apply this truth that God gives spiritual life by being earnest in prayer. Pray for those who you want to see come to life. Pray that they would turn to Jesus. Pray. This is not a a thing that we kind of add on or the last resort. It is one of the main things we do because we believe God is the one who gives spiritual life. We pray and we ask God to give it. We trust that he can bring people from death to life. So Jesus teaches us here that God gives spiritual life And it comes through Jesus. And so come to Jesus. But then we can rightly ask, where do we find Jesus? So we aren't all first century Galileans who can rush out and join the crowd today and hear Jesus teach on a hillside somewhere. We find Jesus' teaching in God's word. And that leads us to a second point. Really, this is an expansion on the first. God gives life through his word. That's the first lesson this parable has to teach us. God gives life through his word. If you've read this parable, maybe heard teaching on it, you may have heard a pastor say, well, this really shouldn't be called the the parable of the sower. We don't hear much about the sower. We hear about the soil. Let's call it the parable of the soils. And I don't really care what you call it. But I do want you to notice that the first thing that Jesus wants to interpret for us in the parable is what the seed is. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, The seed is the word of God. He wants us to have no doubt what this seed is. The seed is the word of God. The seed brings life. The word of God is what brings life. And we see this at the end of the parable. So in verse 15, those who hold fast to the word with a good heart produce enduring fruit. The word of God implanted in their hearts brings forth fruit, the evidence of life. 
But we also see the, the opposite of life in the parable. Where the word is absent, life is absent. So look at verse 12. When Jesus describes the seed that fell on the path, he says, The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, I honestly have no idea exactly what it means for the devil to come and take away the word. But it's very clear. Where someone does not have the word and faith in the word, they cannot believe and be saved. Without faith in God's word, there is no salvation. I remember last week when Jesus looked at the woman and he said, your sins are forgiven. He followed it up with, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She had faith in Christ and his forgiving word and she was saved. But here we read of those who don't have the word. The word has been snatched away from them somehow and they cannot believe and be saved. Salvation comes through faith in God's word. Now I realize to say that may be confusing, right? Because by, by word of God, we, we could refer to the whole Bible, right? All 66 books of what we call the, the scriptures, the Old and New Testament. They are the God-inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God. So that's one way we can use the word of God. We can refer to the, the whole of scriptures, but we can also use the word of God, and I think how it's used here is to say that the main point of the Old and New Testament is to reveal how sinners can be saved by faith in Christ. So God's word is the word about his character, who he is and how he saves. The word of God in the gospel is the message that sinners must believe to be saved. In the context of the parable, I think it's this more narrow definition that Jesus is working with. And that's his focus. People are saved by faith in the good news, the word of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. But I want us to be very careful never to drive a wedge between God's gospel word and his word, as some today try to do. So the only way for us to know the fullness and beauty of the gospel is through knowing the scriptures and studying them. And so if you try to build your faith by saying, I believe in the gospel, but I reject or I'm not so sure about God's word as being authoritative or inspired, well, then you're, you're building on a very shaky foundation. That's like climbing a tree and sitting down on a limb and then sawing it off underneath you. It's not the way of wisdom, and you will not see the whole gospel if you, if you undermine the word of God. But when Jesus talks about faith in the word here, I don't think he's primarily saying a certain doctrine of scripture. He's calling us to believe in the gospel word. The gospel word brings life, and God's word are the words of life. Before we turn and look at the way that unbelief leads to death, we should camp out here and consider a couple of applications of the fact that God's word gives life. And first, I want us to see that this is the foundational truth for the way Christians minister the gospel. So if we're convinced that God is the one who gives life and that he gives it through the word, then our focus, the focus of our work, is proclaiming the word. When we think about how we kind of organize ourselves as a church, our life together, it should be around God's word. 
And hopefully you see that played out among you as you come to worship each week and you look through our order of worship. It's, it's centered on the word. We gather to worship God as he's revealed himself through his word. His word stands at the center. God's word calls us to worship. That's the way we begin our worship services. And we respond to his call by coming and calling upon his name. In God's word, we, we look to adore him. We look to sing songs that are full of scriptural truths, in some ways that are just paraphrases of God's word. We spend time reading the scriptures together, and then we spend a lot of time in sermons like this one, where you hear God's word proclaimed and explained and applied. One uh, theologian has commented that we, in worship, we read the word, pray the word, sing the word, and then in the ordinances, we see the word. We have these visible displays of God's word to us in Lord's Supper and baptism. So we should, we should center around the word when we worship, and we should center around the word when we're, we're more scattered. So when you're talking together one-on-one after church, or if you gather with other brothers or sisters throughout the week, we should try to make the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures central to our conversations. We should meet together. We should set appointments to meet together and study God's word. And by God's grace, we should want even informal conversations to be informed by the truth of God's word. We definitely want our counsel to each other to be scriptural. This confidence in God's word means that we don't finally rely on our own powers of persuasion or our communications technique when we're preaching God's word. This is not to say that we ignore persuasion or that we try to be uh, unclear. But we realize, or we're trying to be very clear, that we're not wanting to cajole anyone or manipulate anyone into making a profession of faith. So we, we don't have kind of turn the screws and turn the emotional music up and try to get everyone to walk the aisle. What we want is to see God's word do its work. And so we proclaim it boldly Amen. and clearly and pray that God would bring fruit from it. We recognize that any kind of manipulative ministry is dangerous. It's likely to lead people astray. And so the fact that God gives life through his word, it guides our practices as a church. We proclaim God's word with confidence that God will give life through it. He will give life to sinners and he'll produce fruit in our lives through the ministry of his word. So that's an application to all of us as a church. But we can also take this application and make it to us on an individual level. On a personal level, the truth that God gives life through his word should influence the way we spend our lives. We should spend our lives on God's word. So we should give ourselves to knowing God through his word. Now this, this can be a daunting task. The, the scriptures are complicated and there's, they're ancient, right? They seem very distant for us at times. It's okay to admit that you might need help along the way as you grow in your understanding of God's word. But you should also be encouraged that though the scriptures are complex and sometimes difficult, The scriptures are also clear. They clearly proclaim that God forgives sinners through Jesus Christ. God graciously makes himself known through his word. So read God's word to look for the big picture. Read God's word and look for God's grace. Look for encouragements to trust God and to keep trusting him. 
Look for promises in God's word that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he is found by those who seek him. Read the scriptures to find Jesus, and you will. As you think about organizing your days, seek to feed yourself and your family from scripture. So if you're starting at ground zero, you might start by just trying to read a psalm at the breakfast table or a few verses from Proverbs. I found it helpful to keep a cheap copy of the Bible I don't care about in the kitchen, so if it gets food and pancake syrup on it, it's okay. Something that you're going to pull out, right? The best Bible you have is the one you have with you. So maybe it's going to be on your phone. But I, I encourage also, use hard copies of the Bible. So keep that Bible near and just pull it out and read a few minutes to your family. So maybe it's that psalm or that proverb in the morning, or maybe it's a few verses of a gospel at dinner time and just work your way through it. Before you read, pray that God would open your eyes and help you to hear God's word. You might approach your Bible reading privately the same way. You don't have to begin with a a big effort to read the whole Bible through in a year. Start with the goal of simply reading something in the Bible today. And then wake up tomorrow and pursue the same goal. And if you don't know what to read, read this week's sermon passage. So you could read Luke chapter 8 or you can look in the bulletin and read next week's. That will help you prepare for worship as well. So read God's word. Read it so that your faith is encouraged. Read it so you can learn what God commands. Read it so you can gain wisdom. Read God's word so you can warn yourself about the deceitfulness of sin. Wrestle with the words of God until you are moved to repent of sin. Allow God's word to shape the way you pray. And keep reading and rereading until you're led to praise God for his grace to you in Jesus Christ. God gives life through his word. And so give your life to knowing God's word. These two applications for Christians are ways that we can obey what Jesus tells us to do in verse 18. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. We've been given this precious gift. We must not neglect it. And we should trust that as we take care how to read, when we attend to God's word, God promises to give us more of himself. Did you hear that? God's reading, God's command for reading comes with a promise. He will give you more of himself. But it also comes with this warning that if we neglect what we've heard, even what we have will be taken away. With that, let's turn now and look at a little more detail, the parable, and how unbelief leads to death. We see this in the first three bad kinds of soil. I want to introduce this section by reading you a line, the first line from Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. He says, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I think we see something about faith here, right? There's only one kind of faith. But apparently there's a variety of ways not to believe in Jesus. And so he unpacks those for us. When we remember that the disciples were the first Christians to hear these words and hear the interpretation of the parable, we see that Jesus is helping disciples, by this teaching, make sense of the world. The disciples were about to be placed on the front lines of ministering the word. Actually, in chapter 9, 
Jesus sends out the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of God. So he enlists them to do the same thing that he's doing here in chapter 8. And then, of course, after Jesus is raised from the dead and he ascends to heaven, the disciples are going to be his apostles upon which he builds the church. And so they need to be aware of how people will respond to God's word. And so Jesus tells them, this is how it's going to go. Readers, of t- readers today, like us, we might want to ask, well, which type of soil am I? And I think that's a good question to ask, but to, to kind of, before we get there, say, well, how do we understand the world when we proclaim the gospel? And Jesus is telling us, these are the kinds of soil you're going to be dealing with as you scatter the seed of God's word. And so in that way, we could, we could summarize the, the first three soils as saying, don't be surprised when people reject the word or they appear to fall away from faith. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all working to root out God's word in people's lives. Again, we might wonder why this is so, right? If God is so powerful, why can't he just overcome these things? Why does he allow some people to receive the word with joy and then fall away, as he said? Well, God does not tell us why, but only that he does. He saw fit in Isaiah's day to punish many with death as Assyria and Babylon carried away the Israelites. He sees fit today to leave some in their unbelief, and he doesn't explain why. Only that his ways are good, that he is just and merciful and wise. So as always, when we think about this, our eyes may be drawn to the negative. That might be the the posture we have in a secular age. Why, God, don't you live up to our standards of fairness, we might put it. But we should always strive to look at it the other way again. It's only by amazing, incomprehensible grace that God opens any of our blind eyes. And so we'll ask the question in our communion hymn that faith asks, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Only God knows. It's only a matter of his grace that we have come. But as people today who intend to share God's word, we can understand from this parable that many that we share with won't come to faith in Christ. Or some of them will make a profession of faith. They'll maybe start off with great joy, it says. But when testing comes, or when the cares and the riches and the pleasures of the world seem appealing to them, they'll turn away. We should be slow then, when someone makes a profession of faith, to, to give assurance of salvation, right? Some evangelistic techniques you know, tell you to pray the prayer with someone and then immediately assure them that if you've prayed that prayer, you're going to heaven. I don't believe that's our place to do that. That's God's job to bring assurance. We should continue to point people to the gospel. So the first application of this parable is to us as teachers and preachers of the word. Proclaim the word expecting it to produce fruit, but also aware that many will either reject it completely or appear to receive it and then fall away. Remember, even among the twelve that Jesus is explaining this parable to, there's Judas present who would fall away, seeming to fall prey to a love of riches. Secondarily, we should examine our own faith in light of these categories. We should ask, Do I see any of these dynamics of unbelief at work in my life? When I'm tested, 
Am I tempted to abandon Jesus and to go back to some old way of life? You know, whatever your pre-conversion ways of dealing with stress were, is that, is that where you still tend to go? Did you start strong, but maybe now the cares of life are leading you to neglect, ignore Jesus? This isn't to condemn any of us for a particular sin, but to ask, where is the trajectory of your life going? Are you moving away from Jesus, or are you moving towards him by faith? Do you find yourself neglecting, crying out to him in prayer, or are you all the more urgently calling on his name and asking for his help as you struggle? Jesus wants us to know that unbelief leads to death. Without faith in the gospel, there is no salvation. So these first three types of soil, they may have their own different take on rejecting God's word, but they do all share the same end. Apart from faith, there's only separation from Christ, the one who came to save. But the final type of soil reinforces the point we've already seen, that God gives life and he gives it through his word. Jesus says, as for that and the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Do you notice the words, hold it fast and patience here? I think this is Luke's unique contribution, and he records these words of Christ. They contrast with what Jesus said about the second and third types of unbelief. Right? In those types of unbelief, there was an initial appearance of faith, But over time, the faith was rejected. But here Jesus says the good soil, they're marked by those who hold fast to the word. And they produce fruit with patience. Saving faith is enduring faith. True saints persevere in belief. If you're reading the word faithfully, like I described earlier, you're going through the word and you're looking at the whole counsel of God, something you'll notice again and again is how much we need endurance. And you could hear it in Asaph's cry, how long, O Lord, he needed endurance and to remember that God would ultimately deliver Israel and his remnant. Don't we need the same encouragement to endure? In our trials, aren't we tempted to give up? to go back to old ways. We know that trials will come. You know, being in a church, even a small church like ours, we can see that. We can see a lot of our brothers and sisters facing difficulties of various kinds. So we don't have to deceive ourselves in thinking that life is going to be easy. And we know that the cares and pleasures and riches of life are enticing. They're appealing. But by God's grace, if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ... We will endure, bearing fruit with patience. So what is this fruit that we're to bear? Well, we could describe it with the words of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. That's the kind of fruit that we should expect to see as we hold fast to Christ and his word. Or we could just go back to Luke 6 and use Jesus' own words. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That kind of fruit should be seen in our lives. 
you know, one way that we can serve each other in the, in the church is to name the good fruit that we see in each other's lives. So do you see a brother or sister in the church who's enduring in faith and love? Well, let them know what you see. Encourage them. Or do you see a, a parent who's patiently bearing with a rebellious child? Tell them how they've encouraged you by seeing their example of faith. Do you see a husband or a wife who's loving a difficult spouse and relying on the Lord? Praise the Lord with them for the grace that's on display in their lives. Jeff and Betty were cackling back there. They must feel like this really hits home to them. Never lose sight of the fact that fruit is a product of the heart, though. So even as we encourage signs we see, we should remember that fruit is a product of the word that holds fast, or the, or the heart that holds fast to Christ. Jesus taught us this again in his sermon on the, the level place, right? That out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That out of the, the evil heart, evil fruit's produced. And out of the good heart, good fruit is produced. So we may have an, an eye on fruit, but our focus is on Christ. And we should point one another to Christ. Encourage each other. Fix your eyes on Christ, brother or sister. Hold fast to him. The fruit will come as we hold fast to Christ. The disciples who first heard these words were being given the secrets of the kingdom. Right? Because Jesus was right there with them, teaching them how to recognize what true kingdom growth is. And they were being prepared for their future ministry. I think that's what Jesus is doing in verses 16 and 17 as well. These kind of odd verses about lighting a lamp and not hiding it or things that are secret being revealed. Well, there is a certain kind of secretiveness to Jesus's earthly ministry, a kind of hiddenness. Jesus, I think, is telling us some are being kept in blindness until he is crucified. It's necessary for this blindness to persist so that he will die for sinners. But eventually, what is hidden will come to light. And the disciples are going to play a key role in, in proclaiming that light when it comes. And so again, they are called here. Be prepared. Take care how you hear. Because the day is coming when you're going to put that light on the lampstand for the whole world to see. So that sinners can find life in Christ. And this brings us back to the question we began with. Who can approach God? We said maybe it's the righteous who can approach God. Maybe it's the Pharisees who can approach God. Our last section of this passage provides a very provocative answer to that question. Let's read it now. Then his mother and brothers came to him. So this is Mary and Jesus' brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now that's really arresting, right? It, it sounds like Jesus is being cold or indifferent to his mother and brothers. I don't think that's what's going on here. But he's taking the opportunity to use them as an object lesson. Even natural relation to Jesus does not get you a pass into his kingdom. Right? You would think of any, anybody on earth that should have had kind of an open door. It would have been Jesus' blood relatives. 
But Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is not of flesh and blood. To come into my kingdom, here is what you need. To hear God's word and do it. And that's not saying obedience gets us in, but hearing the word of, of the gospel and responding by faith. These are Jesus' mother and brothers. And it reminds you of the way the passage began. Who are Jesus' mother and brothers? They're those disciples who are faithfully gathered around him, those women who've been healed by him, who are giving of their own means. This is what Jesus himself promised, that those who enter his kingdom and have to leave behind natural families, they'll receive mothers and brothers and sisters in the kingdom, won't they? We have an object lesson right here before us. Jesus takes the opportunity to use his own mother and brothers to make it. But the, the point is not to exclude anyone, I think. The point is here to say all of us, by faith in Christ, can be joined to his family. Anyone who turns from their sin and receives the work of Jesus, they can be saved and forgiven. That's the amazing good news of this passage. It takes us right back to the call to worship. Right? Only the righteous can enter. And none of us have righteous, righteousness on our own. But because Christ, the cornerstone, was rejected and he bled and died, we can enter. We can enter clothed in Christ's righteousness. We can be part of Jesus' family by faith in him. Let's pray and ask for God's help to trust him. Father, it's sobering to meditate on the fact that there is an, an inside and outside to your kingdom. There are those who reject Jesus even some who have appeared to give evidence of faith and yet fallen away. So Father, we pray for sober hearts. We pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves and turn away from our sin and trust fully in Christ. But we also rejoice before you, Father, that we can be named among your people. That though we are far off, though we were exiles and strangers to your covenant, we can become your children by faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, none of us deserve this. So, Father, we pray for your help to keep trusting you, to hold fast to the word of Christ. We pray that our lives will bear fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.